0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome, everyone, to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the President and Vice-Chancellor of the LSE, and I am delighted to be joined today by students, faculty, alumni, supporters, friends and staff and partners of LSE, both virtually and in person, for today's special celebration. This evening, we will award... Professor Sir Tim Berners-Lee, an honorary doctorate, to recognize and celebrate his genuinely exemplary contributions to social science and to society. After that, he and my colleague, Professor Ken Benoit, who's also head of our Data Sciences Institute at the LSE, and myself, will engage in a conversation about Web 3.0 technology and data policy and how they can combine to encourage, to promote data sovereignty, privacy, and trust. Through his invention of the World Wide Web, our honorand has utterly transformed every one of our lives in terms of economic, political, cultural, and social dimensions. And in his tireless advocacy for a better web, he has fought to shape a free, open, creative, and democratic digital future for humanity. He could not be more deserving of this honor. The awarding of an LSE honorary doctorate allows us to recognize extraordinary distinction and accomplishment in an area of scholarship or public activity in line with our guiding principles and vision to be a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. Professor Sir Tim, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this global community. And I'm delighted now to introduce the director of LSE's Data Sciences Institute, Professor Ken Benoit, who will now offer the traditional oration. Ken.
1: President Baroness Shafiq, ladies and gentlemen, it is my great privilege to introduce Professor Sir Tim Berners-Lee and to commend him to you for conferral of an honorary degree from the London School of Economics and Political Science. One of the most distinguished computer scientists, inventors, and academics of our time, Sir Tim has, through his visionary and pioneering work, profoundly transformed almost every aspect of our society. I am deeply honored for this opportunity to share with you some of his highlights of his remarkable career and to outline why I'm presenting him today for an honorary degree at the LSE. His career accomplishments are vast but the one for which he will forever be remembered is simply this. In 1989, while working at CERN, Sir Tim invented the World Wide Web, a development that revolutionized the way that humanity communicates and shares information with each other. This creation is widely seen as one of the most significant technological developments in history, akin to the introduction of the printing press in the 15th century. Outlined in his 1989 paper, information management a proposal, it was Sir Tim's brilliant idea to connect formatted hypertext through linking pages across the internet. This involved not only devising the system of hypertext links, but also designing the format of web addresses, the idea of a domain name system, as well as developing the first web browser and the first web server. But it was more than either the novel conception or the first implementation of this idea that led to his invention becoming one of the era's most significant achievements. By making the world wide web an open standard and the first web server and browser public domain software rather than attempting to own and license his inventions for personal gain, he ensured that the web would be built on a framework available to all and a contribution to all humanity. Sir Tim's decision to make the World Wide Web standard open has enabled people from all over the world to access information and communicate with each other in ways that were previously beyond imagination. It has helped to foster innovation and creativity on a scale that would not have been possible had the web been a closed or proprietary system. In the decades since, he has continued to work tirelessly to enhance and protect the vision that the web should be accessible to everyone, regardless of their location or economic status. He has been a vocal advocate for net neutrality and open data and has advised numerous governments and corporations on digital strategies. In 2009, Lady Rosemary Leith and Sir Tim co-founded the World Wide Web Foundation to ensure that the web serves humanity by establishing it as a global good and a public right. He is also director of the World Wide Web Consortium, A global web standards organization that he founded in 1994 to lead the web to its full potential. Rarely has any inventor been such a devoted steward of their creation. LSE is hardly the first institution to recognize Sir Tim's immeasurable contributions to society. Any list of his accolades found on the web contains innumerable hypertext links. (laughs) Among them is the 50th anniversary A.M. Turing Award in 2017, which is considered to be the Nobel Prize of Computing. He was also awarded Finland's first Millennium Technology Prize in 2004, which is considered one of the world's largest technology prizes. He was knighted by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth in 2004 for his services to the global development of the Internet. He was awarded the UK's Order of Merit, in 2007, a personal gift of the monarch that is limited to just 24 living recipients. He was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. And of course, he has been awarded many honorary degrees. Today, we at LSE are proud to add to that number. Sir Tim embodies LSE's guiding principles and original vision as a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. At its heart, his mission mirrors our own, to enable people from everywhere on Earth and from every conceivable walk of life to communicate with each other and to learn from the experience. LSE does this through education, research and outreach. Sir Tim has done this through his creation and guardianship of the World Wide Web and through his tireless work to ensure that it is both open and secure connecting all people to one another and to the information on which our modern society and civilization is built for the betterment of that society. While we may not offer the degree in physics that Sir Tim earned at Oxford, nor in computer science or engineering, in other words, the disciplines one may associate with our honorand, it is entirely fitting that LSE should honor this son of London for extraordinary accomplishments that touch virtually every facet of our political, economic, social, and cultural lives. President Baroness Shafiq, I request that by the authority of the Council of the London School of Economics and Political Science, you admit Professor Sir Tim Berners-Lee to the degree of Doctor of Science, Social Sciences.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is a, it's a tremendous honor and to be, yes, it's in my hometown, even though it's not my home subject. So particularly thanks to you, Manoush Shafiq, and also Ken Benoit and of, us, uh, of the Science Institute here. Technology does not exist in a vacuum. So to understand it, to understand the way socio-technical systems like the web work, you have to bring all disciplines to bear, including law and economics. Just as cognitive science brought together different fields to understand the brain, so web science brings together fields to understand and redesign the web. Justified partly by, for example, the realization that there are more web on the web than neurons in the brain, and if they had cognitive science, we should therefore have web science to look at a similar sort of Big, serious problem of a very complicated system when in general the, what the world chooses the way the world decides what commonly to believe we use science it's the best we got as mr churchill might have said and when we decide what to do we use democracy on a good day democracy driven by science uh, and uh, <laughs> And that idea is reflected by the Digital science institute here at LSE, looking at social, political and economic implications and impacts of technology from nuanced and creative perspectives. Economics has been important in the construction and the understanding of our world around us, and through economic analysis and modeling, we understand the motivation of people and countries and companies. And LSE has always played a pivotal role in our society leading that analysis. But also, not just science, we also need engineering. We must build, build things, build new, better things. And so it's not just about analyzing existing systems. When we put new systems on the web, we create completely new social and economic systems that have their own new sets of rules, and later their own emergent properties, be it are wonderful things like international scientific collaboration or horrible things like teenage mental health issues. So we're building a new world, not just studying the old one. Thank you very much for the degree. Thank you for the opportunity also to come and meet you. Thank you.
0: I think if I let them, they'll just keep applauding, but I think we probably do need to move on to the next stage. So I'm going to start by asking Tim and also maybe Ken, a few questions as well. And then we will turn to the audience after we have a bit of a conversation and as well as the online audience thereafter. But I'm going to start with you, Tim. And this is a pretty nerdy crowd at the LSE. (laughs) So I wanted to start by establishing some definitions and clarity about the concept. So the title of your remarks are is the role of web 3.0. Tell us a little bit about how web 3.0 differs from the web we've grown to know and
2: love. Okay, how long have we got? <laughs> uh, so so really to explain why web 3.0 is something that we are rolling out by right now, you have to think back for those of you've got long enough uh, you might remember when I originally designed the web. I just designed HTTP and, and HTML and URLs, and so with an HTML page, you could write a static web page. so the web was a web of it. you had links, so it, was, it, it seemed very dynamic and that you could follow links all over it. But it was all about people writing, for example, blogs, linking to each other people 's blogs and if you had a computer the internet, all you had to do download some web software, catch the internet, and publish your blog if you've got a domain name. Then you could, you know, my wonderful would compete in the same way as any other blogs out there. So that spirit of the web back then was it seemed very empowering, it was uh, individual people competed on a level. That was what we call that web one, although we didn't call it web one, so back then. But when O'Reilly and companies have started Web 2.0 conferences to point out where web was different later on, they want to point out actually when by the time browsers got the power to run JavaScript programs, so that your web page is not a static document. With web 2.0, your web page is a program that runs. And the web page does depends completely on the person who controls the website. And typically what it does, like it takes you into Facebook, it takes you into Instagram, it takes you into Travel or whatever it is, but it talks to you, it's much more interactive, it's much more fun, but it stores the way that web 2.0 works, out. it stores all the data about you back on the web, Facebook website, on the Strava website, or on the LinkedIn website. And so now with web 2.0, the world is lots of wonderful things happening, everybody really loves. Facebook individual star, but they've got the problem that you can't do anything with your LinkedIn colleagues when you're in Facebook. These, in, all of the data is in these silos. So in fact, people don't have that tremendous feeling of power. How can we get that back? Well, we need to introduce more technology. Stuff that we had is not rocket science, but for example, so the new layer we call solid protocol. You can look at that solid protocol and solid project just adds more protocol. It adds single sign-on, so if you log in with Solid anywhere in the web, your identity can be used by any system. And global access control, so I can share anything with anything, and it completely flips around the whole architecture of the web because the app, instead of running and storing the data in its own backend, the app will store data in your in a Solid pod, personal store. and so the big change with web 3.0 is that you have complete control of your data, so it's like all of your data gets stored in things like Dropbox or to which you control. And I have to say, at this point, that it's web 3.0. Okay, now, unfortunately, somebody announced that the, their blockchain project they're going to call web 3. That was just very confusing. Okay, <laughs> web 3.0 is not blockchain, and, but always have to explain. So you can go off and uh, spend time talking about with the blockchain people, i asked them why they called it Web3, but, uh, but meanwhile i come back to the web technology, which is actually, it's just the web technology, but with more, more powerful user.
0: Okay, and you also talk a lot about data sovereignty and being able to empower users to control their own data. Could you say a little bit more about that and how is that linked to things like intellectual property rights and so on?
2: So the data sovereignty is what comes in a way. When you've got a solid pod, then when each app that you run says where do you want to Minutia, where, where do you want to store that, or you take a photograph, everything. When you can put it in your pod, then in your pod you can have your personal data. And a lot of people come to us worrying about privacy. They love after. And the GDPR regulations were produced largely because of privacy, and so that they then they require that any company should be able to give you your data back, give you your control of your data. But actually, not very. Really, it's not like intellectual property sounds a little bit like you know, selling access to my book. That's okay. That sounds like, a bit like money, mm. money. But this is actually, it's not. I don't want to have control of my data to sell. Mm.
0: Quite the okay. opposite some opposite.
2: I want to have control because when I got control, I can do lots of things. So, that all the solid apps, all the new solid operating systems we're producing, are much more powerful. And so, we're in LSC. So, we so, if people tell you data is the new oil, wrong. No, data is not the new oil. Oil, when I give you my oil, I have no oil anymore. When I give you my data, I still have my data. Fundamentally different. Data is not the new oil. When people talk about data New then they, they, you know, I, they want to fight for the lives of ordinary people in the street to be able to sell their data. No! <laughs> their data, should, they should use their data. Much more powerful to use your data. More powerful to use your data partly because your data is more interesting to you than anybody else.
0: Yes, quite. So let me go back to the very beginning again, and Ken mentioned it in this oration. When, when you wrote your famous proposal in 1989, proposing the information management system that would become the web, Apparently, your boss at CERN noted in the margin, he scribbled, vague, but exciting.
2: Mm. Fortunately, you're on the other way down. (laughs)
0: So i have to ask you, (laughs) when did you realize that exciting might be what, you know, in the UK we call understatement in a big way, and that your invention was going to be revolutionary? When did you realize that?
2: Everybody asks that question. They said, <laughs> so when did you realize it was really going to take off? So they want to know, when was that hockey stick moment when you realized it's been going out like of this, but now it's going out like that. Yeah. And so uh, Hal Abelson at MIT gives a good lecture about he- hockey stick moments and uh, exponential. So we plotted the load on the first server the first year, and it went up from like 10 hits a day to 100 hits a day. So this, uh, as it's exponential, so a lot of people are going to say, that's when it took off. And guess what happened next year? We it the load on the, on the server, and it went from 10 to 100. And then the next year, it went from 100 to 1,000. So you know what? So what, so in fact, when was hockey sick? So you don't, so do not look at the linear graph. So then you put that on log graph paper for the first three years. And so, it, and, and it's just a straight, that it is. you can put a line through on log graph paper, 10, 100, 1,000. So we realised that just, that was just people looking. The number of people, number of hits, today looking at our our own survey. So we realised that you're locked in world. If something goes up by 10 every year, then after 10 years, everybody on the planet would be involved. But you know what's going to happen? Lots of things on the internet did you no know, did that. <laughs> did that? Okay. Lots of these. So we had to sort of buckle up and just prepare and make sure that if it was going to keep going by a factor of 10 every year, that it was going to be good, it was going to be scalable, it was going to be good for humanity. Yes. Uh, it, didn't, it wasn't going to have all quite a hot, hot. So it was a lot, huge amount of effort trying to make sure it was well designed and, uh, and could cope with that scale. Okay.
0: So you mentioned good for humanity. In 2018, you launched something called the Contract for the Web, which laid out three principles each for government, For companies and for citizens, to ensure fair access and privacy for all, and to make sure that the web was a force for good in the world. How do you think we're doing on the contract for the web?
2: Back in the day, that was a few years ago. Now, that was a really useful. I think governments found it really interesting to be able to talk, particularly in the contract for the web working groups, with with industry to find, figure out, and talk to really the people within the industry who who are writing the code. What they could do and what they couldn't do. So in fact, it was a really useful point to when people realised you can't just do everything with tech. You can't just do everything with, with, with regulation. Well, how do we measure? So in another correct another thing that the there was a couple of years that the Web Foundation it a Web Index, mm-hmm. and so then looking at country by country because you know minister of telecommunications would come. To, and say, so what should my country do? So you say, well, look at, look at the web index. So the great web, web index was we listed a whole bunch of things which we felt were important. It changed a bit. each Yeah, but by listing, when you make an index, then you, it's a huge value statement. Mm. So there were a couple of years when you can look, go back and look at those web, web indexes, and we have a plan that we are going to do another one in the future. Very, That's good. Well.
0: Very good. A little competition for good policy, kind of, and good behavior. So let me bring Ken in. Technology is almost always ahead of policy, and policymakers are always trying to catch up with technological innovations, particularly in democratic countries where policy changes are slower and more deliberative and, and there's much more debate. So in some sense, regulators are always fighting the last war, and new fronts and challenges are opening up very quickly. You've done a lot of work on the interaction between politics and data. Can policy in such a technical area ever catch up and be effective? And what do you think that greater accountability for adverse consequences on the part of those who develop the technology might be a better way than trying to regulate the technologies themselves?
1: What a big question. Yeah, I'll do my best with that. So how many of you saw the hearings, uh, the congressional hearings, where some of the uh, tech firms were being qu- quizzed by members of Congress? Yeah. Well. It's pretty clear, and if you've seen any of the ones where Mark Zuckerberg's been interviewed or grilled um, by a committee, they don't know much about technology. So there's just a lag in the information and the knowledge that they can uh, have, and it requires a tremendous amount of expertise to implement good policy when it comes to technology. Technology is always advancing at such a rapid pace that even technologists struggle to keep up with it. I was a fan of Tim's work from a very early age, and I understood everything he was talking about. Because in the 90s, I was putting together computers that had instructions that said if you drove the monitor the wrong way, they could burst into flame. Um, And they involved installing open source versions of the first uh, web server demons and writing web pages with blinking uh, things in Times Roman script that uh, were like HTML (laughs) 1.0. I don't think a lot of policy makers shared that experience.
2: And I, also <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't also think a policy maker that does share that experience. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Nope. Well,
1: there aren't a lot of people at LSE who share that experience. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to do in our mission here, especially at the Data Science Institute, is to educate more people who would marry this union of technology and policy because you can't really understand how to regulate technology if you don't understand that technology. So you can't make good policy without understanding something about the technology. You, you would have to trust people and their expertise and understand that what they're saying, and probably in a very dumbed-down version, is correct. And trust is probably one of the key challenges I'm sure we'll be talking about at some point uh, this evening. There are also issues that relate to conflicting objectives and the means to implement those objectives. So a lot of times people are having conflicts over what appears to be different ways to implement something, when in fact what they're having clashes over are different visions of what should be implemented. And I think when it comes to technologies like the web, there are different visions of what the web and the internet should be. There's a book whose authors, I can't seem to recall at the moment, you've probably read some of it, uh, it's a 2021 book called The Four Internets. Has anyone heard of this book? Well, uh, to, to, to very give you the very brief summary, there are four visions of the Internet. One of them is the California vision, which is that it should be open. It's very much, I think, what the early visions of the pioneers of the Internet had envisioned. Then there's um, what's called the European model, which is that we should regulate the Internet for protect people from the excesses of companies and what can happen online. There's a DC model, which is that And it's called that because it's protected by some court decisions which basically say you can put things behind uh, company walls, you can keep people's data, not the open model that Tim was talking about, but very much the one where a company can give you free things and keep all of your data, put trackers on your computer, uh, they can identify you through a digital footprint based on your hardware, um, and know a lot of things about you based on not what you're doing on their website, but what you did on other people's websites, or what you did using apps on your phone and cross-tabulate that data in ways that we didn't we have no understanding of. Um, If we did, we probably would would delete those apps um, or not use those services. And then there's what's called the Beijing model which is that you regulate the internet for um, public good and for the betterment of society according to a very particular vision of what that entails. So, Right now we've got this UK online safety bill that is still not finished after four years of formulation. That's because it tries to achieve objectives that involve a clash of two objectives, two visions, which is one that people should be protected from online harm, especially children, and the other one that we should have privacy. And for example, um, there was this uh, objection letter signed by the makers of end-to-end encryption apps, including Signal, but of notoriously, of course, WhatsApp, it's the biggest one, but there are, there are about six signatories to this. Because to implement that, and you would have to monitor content to ensure that it didn't contain images that match some database, and therefore, you wouldn't be able to have secure end-to-end encryption. And therefore, if you were a political dissident or someone who needed to have that privacy for another reason, then you wouldn't have that. And some of those app makers said that if the bill were passed, they would withdraw from the market. So that's just an example of the tricks, of the difficulty, the trickiness of trying to make policy to regulate
2: the internet.
0: Tim, did you want to add anything on the challenges for regulation?
2: So I suppose you start off with the assumption that the policy can never keep up, and to the extent it's going to be sort of accurately true, as you say, but on the other hand, if you design, ideally, you design tech policy, you design the policy and you design the laws together, we can design a solid pod where you can stop somebody... I can stop you getting at my data, I can turn off access to the data, and if you remember it, if you've taken a copy of it on a thumb drive, or on your phone, and then you email it to the public and you tweet it, then actually there's no technology possible which can just make data disappear. There's no sort of vanishing ink in data. And so there's just for what tech can do. So what we rely on then, so yeah, if the tech has stopped, if I've stop giving access to this, that data, but use a copy, use, use, use it against the terms and um, conditions I gave to you, but then that has to be legal. And so we have to understand which bits we rely on being illegal for the system to work. And people who may made those laws have to understand which bits actually they can rely on the, the, the systems blocking. So Doing t- together to a certain extent, it, it was neat. For example, when, the G- when they were putting together the GDPR, the, one of the people who was Italian pro- law professor was one well, of the people roped into writing the GDPR stuff, and she came to MIT. She saw a talk of the technology, which is a, the, the solid project, which is basically a big chunk of the Web 3.0 stuff for giving people power mm-hmm. And she said, "Oh, wow, that will be." She came back after the talk and said. Actually, if your technology, you know, if we our, our GDPR regulations are trying to make a world where everybody has got this technology, mm-hmm. so they work really, really well together. So sometimes you get things where where it works where it well works together. Sometimes.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about generative artificial intelligence, where we're not so sovereign, and the intelligence is trained on the content that humans create and the residual data that we leave behind in our interaction with digital systems. Let me start with Ken. How is generative AI being integrated into the web? And what what excites you about this and what keeps you up at night? Now I'll ask Tim the same question.
1: So what excites me is that a search is going to be vastly improved by generative AI. And it's going to return fewer false positive results. It's going to be more useful It's going to be uh, more capable of accurate summarization. It's not great yet. We just had a two-day symposium on generative AI and the knowledge economy that finished with the day in this room earlier today. And when our colleagues with Imperial are sitting in this room and John here in the front row, and we actually asked ChatGPT to devise the schedule for a symposium about itself, and it did okay. It even had <laughs> coffee breaks at the right time. We, then you can ask it, you know, well, okay, this round table that you're talking about, who would we invite for the round table? And it'll tell you, you need someone from industry, you need someone from academia, maybe a legal expert. <laughs> it's not bad, you know. Um, when I tried to use it to assist in writing the oration that I delivered for Tim, it, it wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> So that, that was, That's because
0: he's very careful about his privacy and he doesn't have to <laughs> spew his, his data across the internet.
1: So I had to synthesize my own version after listening to an entire weekend podcast and, and be, interviews and things. Like that. <laughs> which were absolutely fascinating. I know about the, the, this pod project and the solid technology, it's something really interesting. Um, it's a standard that basically an open standard that I think your company is developing the forefront of the implementation for Mm -hmm. that would give you this data sovereignty. How do you implement that Well something is actively working on? That's really exciting, Um, and it involves a way for companies to deliver that, but also for for people to possibly store their own server at home. For for any of you who have ever run your own VPN server out of your own home, I don't think many people do that. Or, uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand because it'd be kind of embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you go. Okay. We've got nerds among us. So.
2: Tim, did
0: you want to add something on, uh, on generative AI?
2: Ooh, uh, great! It's going to be so powerful for solving a lot of problems. Why not the? Uh, yes, when you start off with a, a large language model that you've just given to the whole, given you've shown in the entire web. And uh, it's great that any one person can then go up and ask, you know, the the entire record, as as some people used to call it, the the record of humanity or everything that human knows. And so a person can go and and put together a question to this oracle, the big library in the sky sort of thing. I think that is great. Yes, I'm worried about it being used for scamming, for example, obviously, uh, all those... Nigerian uh, emails about uh, which are so badly written. Obviously, they could be very very maybe very more effective. Uh, maybe they already are, but but so obviously, not one of the issues is it being used by uh, for evil intents. Uh, but interestingly, if you take the whole idea of Solid pods, the solid world of your data in the future, when you've got access to your own data. As well as all that public data. So in a way, what you need, and people are thinking, and there's been some interesting results recently, with you uh, you have a chatbot which has got access to all that stuff that everybody knows, but also it's got all the stuff in your team and your family, and all this. it's a bit like. That if you have, on a good day when your calendar, for example, pulls in data, to make a t- decision about what you're doing tonight, you have to have your family calendar and your work calendar, And your, well, I do, but I have like 25 calendars that come together as to whether I can actually go, whether I can do dinner tonight. Okay? Otherwise, life breaks down. So if you have an AI that works for you, then it's very different. So if I have an AI that works for me, then I would share with it all of my data, all of my data in my pot. And then it will become very much more powerful. And so the ability then for me to, for it to understand all of my hopes and dreams, understand where help me find just great places for the family to go on vacation, great places, projects for the for the teams to do, all that sort of. So when the AI, the idea of it really isn't giving the value I want until it works for me, and it's combined, until we have a world in which I have access to all my own data.
1: I actually didn't answer the question about what keeps me up at night. Yes, um, go for it. Besides the nervousness at sitting on the stage with the living legend uh, <laughs> in a public event. Um, so, two things, really. And I think they're the same things that I've been worried about with the internet for a long time. And One of them is the undermining of public trust through things that, basically, people don't trust as being authentic. Um, we are going to see a very interesting presidential election in the United States next year, and uh, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, the previous... it's documented that there were troll farms of people disseminating fake information, including people doing things from their kitchen tables. Well, if you can do use AI at a large scale to do that, then it's going to further undermine public trust. And public trust is essential for a healthy society. And the other thing, I think, is this issue that instead of the web connecting communities, it's creating a clustering and a, a centrifugal force of creating divided communities through Delivering what people want as a business model and finding your preferences and saying we're going to just send you more of that and more of that and if you don't like these people we're going to send you more of that which is an even more powerful drug than reinforcing the positive and therefore we get these divided communities that talk past one another instead of to one another.
2: So if we get a second chance also picking up what keeps me up at night because I shouldn't really I have to admit that what keeps me up at night is AI getting out of control is the singularity. You know, We've been wondering about the singularity, talking about it, having conferences about it for a long time. I think people it is a serious issue. If you build something which is smarter than you, then watch out. And when people say "don't worry," it's only at heart a thing which tries to guess the next word. Actually, no, it's no longer something which guesses. It's something with a trillion but. nodes in it. If it behaves when you judge intelligence, is how it behaves, not what you think it's. As uh, sort of uh, and if you, And when people say, don't worry, it's really hard to build a robot. Building Terminator, building, building the, the girl, the, the blonde girl in Ex Machina, for example, it's really, it's really, really hard to make robots like that. Actually, to take over the world, you don't have to be blonde and anthropomorphic. <laughs> actually, you only have to be a cloud presence that can tweet and you can manipulate the world. So we do have to worry about that.
0: None of you are sleeping tonight. (laughs) Let's move on to how these problems might be solved. At the moment, digital policy is still done at the nation state level, although the European Union is trying to position itself as a kind of regional and potentially global standard setter. But there's a lot of competition and fracturing of policy, and the, the companies themselves kind of exploit those differences. Tim, you worked at CERN, which was in some ways one of the great examples of international cooperation and coordination, trying to bring one of the most risky technologies in the world, nuclear technology, into an international framework for good. Do you think that it's possible to have a CERN for the web and digital technology or some other global mechanism whereby we coordinate better on on the challenges? Uh,
2: First of all, CERN, it's got in, when it was originally put together in the 50s, it was about nuclear technology. So it was about smashing nuclei up. But then, as it went on, it, got, it went smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, smaller. And so it's now it's particle physics. So it's not about bombs. It's not about. So the particle <laughs> physics I I should it is the European lab for particle physics. Rather than... And so CERN called CERN, the N did come from nuclear originally. Uh, They come on and away from that. So so it is really, really... uh, The accelerators, you have to put huge amounts of energy into it and you get nothing out. You just get a little bit of data. You won't get quite a lot of data, but but you put it so that that what they don't need to solve is the problem of uh, the thing running out of control. uh, So CERN isn't a model for that, but but CERN is, on the hand, a really, really neat place to do stuff. Mm. Uh, It was a great place where... They had people with all different nationalities, all different types of computer, uh, that, uh, so they had the problems of needing to communicate, so it was a great place to... it's hard to imagine anywhere else what good would have been good petri- such a good Petri dish for inventing the web. And so, yeah, I, I think it would be great because good things come out when, when, when people, are bright people, mot- motivated people, you know, are put together. So it would be neat to have a phone like thing for doing web science and, and, and tackling these tech problems and, and doing as so long as it was multidisciplinary. And we could do have all of that and have the economists and the, and, and the psychologists and all of them as well.
0: Did you want to add something, Ken?
1: This concern about machines being smarter than us, I think it's a really interesting one because if they're in control, I guess it's something to worry about. My background's political science and We've known for a long time that there are already beings smarter than the ones who are in control. Um, (laughs) So uh, if the the AI is not in control, I think that's maybe the key. (laughs) Hopefully there's an off switch.
0: So let me ask my last question to Tim and I'll ask you, Ken, if you want to add anything. But over the past decade, we've seen many of the brightest minds in computer science and engineering leave academia to go for very high-paying jobs in tech companies, including for you know good reasons like they have more research resources that may not exist in universities. You hold academic posts at both MIT and Oxford. You've worked in major global research institutions I wanted to ask you, what role do you think universities, and this includes your new alma mater of the LSE, uh, mm. <laughs> should be playing mm. in this debate? What are we doing right? What can we do better? How can we contribute to the kind of digital future that you've fought for for so long?
2: Uh, I think don't despair that academic salaries are less than... Uh, than commercial salaries. Okay, that's always been a thing. Uh, it always will be a thing. The, uh, the reason that people, some of the people came to work for MIT the piece of WTC was because they said, well, here, I get to design protocols without being tied to a particular company, a particular commercial result. Um, and so I can look at it, look at what's best for the time when I design the protocol, and I just find out, and it's, and it's worth... Yeah, the people talked about the, the MIT premium. That's uh, MIT hardly hardly be saying anything because it's just you it should, it should be so lucky to be there, and to so they said all, all academia can does that. But the reason why it's good to be in an academic world, but do lots of variations. So yeah, but allow, allow people to to uh, to come and go. Uh, allow people to do courses where you know where they come and go between and rotate. Uh, between industry and academia and collaborate, uh, get those high collaborative projects where maybe uh, the big compute is on some big corporate site, but, uh, but a lot of the big thinking about it is in students' minds. Yeah. Okay. Finding ways for students to be able to, was, so at MIT we, we had the undergraduate research opportunities program so that you you could get involved in research a little bit during the summer, during the, so you, you could see so the students, undergrad students even could. So you can do that with the industry too. Undergrads have sort of all kinds of different ways. trying to Try to have a great, great variety of ways in which people can mix between the two and collaborate like crazy, internationally too. collaborate with people all over wow. the planet.
0: Ken, did you want to add anything on what mm. you're trying to do at the Data Sciences Institute?
1: I would love to. Um, so I think the answer to this mm. question mm. is, Tim, you outlined an excellent vision. I completely agree with that. We should be collaborating more with industry and technologists. For institutions that study social science, we should be focusing more on teaching people about technology, about data science, and taking the traditional subjects where we teach people in particular about politics and policy, also to understand what data science means, to understand what the technological foundations of things mean so that we can better have people join government and regulate that with some understanding of what's going on. I also love the idea that you proposed of web science as a discipline or some interdisciplinary field because the connections that people make together through this worldwide Wide Web and through the evolving Internet technologies is something that we need to study in a technological way and it involves not just the sort of skills that our, our friends at Imperial have, and we've got a large team of them here who are in the audience today, and we have a complementary relationship through the two data science institutes with Imperial. That complementary relationship helps this STEM and social science to be bridged, but we need to be doing that directly in something like what you call for with web science, where we, we study these connections with technology as the, as the core connecting glue and all the things that that entails.
3: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSEIQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich come check us out just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts now back to the event
0: now I'm going to turn to the audience I'm going to take questions in a batches of three from the in-room audience and then I'll turn to the online audience I like to start with a woman, so I'm going to start with you, and then the
4: gentleman
0: there, and then the gentleman here. One of the advantages of being a woman, (laughs) one of the few. Um, Thank you so much for this. Could you just introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, My name is Saskia Otto. I um, work at the Fabian Society, and I used to lead on data access policy in DCFS. Um, I'm also an LSE graduate, and I'm also very starstruck. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I had a question about this sort of um, you know, the things that keep us up at night. I have this sort of growing sense that whatever's going to happen is going to happen and there's absolutely no way for government to can respond on time. Um, and I'm just wondering kind of how, what kind of mechanisms you see as available to us to be able to, I guess, slow things down, keep up and respond um, to techno- technological change um, as it happens. Okay, thank you. Gentleman over there, and then the one here. Hello. uh,
1: Thank you for the discussion. My name is Shaw. I am the Vice Chair of the Youth Standing Group from Internet Society. I would like to discuss further about the
2: future of the internet governance. Uh, When thinking about IG forums, the first one which came in our minds are are the NGF. And should the NGF mandate be renewed
1: In Europe, would
0: it be able to address the next 10-year challenges? Okay, thank you. Uh, And the gentleman here.
4: Uh, Good evening, everyone. Um, My name is Ian Sheridan. I'm a financial regulation lawyer that focuses on technology. I'm also an LSE graduate. I see the buildings have got bigger and smarter (laughs) since I was (laughs) in Um, here. My question concerns innovation and um, inventing things and it comes from this um, context, that um, many of the graduates here, they can easily end up working for an asset manager, a bank, a law firm or a management consultancy. And we all know the contracts of employment will, in a sense, uh, they will discourage them from trying to invent something themselves because anything they invent will be part of the employer. And that must discourage quite a few Individuals, or at least, yeah, in, in some sense, slow them down in, in that, that passion as you had many years ago at CERN. So I just ask you if you have any views on what can they do about that. Mm.
0: Okay. So three mm. questions. How can we get this under control, internet mm. governance and jobs and innovation? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very
2: uh, easy. How, how can you get uh, control was, what was I listen, listen to I think Hard Fork. Was that when, the, uh, so that when they, somebody, maybe it was the OpenAI folks, they said we are asking for regulation. The social networks asked for regulation years ago and you didn't do anything to Congress, for example. Congress didn't really regulate social networks very much. And so they said, what's the point of us asking you to re- if we say we need, want to be regulated? Are we going to be wasting our time because Will American, will the U.S. Congress just not do it? So one answer, if you're a congressman, is just you know say yes. Actually, okay, actually go and do it. Actually, put your teams together to talk to these these guys about when they're asking to me, and really don't just let the the years slip by like they did with social networks. So that's just one one piece of the answer to. So what about what? Uh, well, if. Yeah, if you've got an industry and you work for the man and you work for the company, then your IP will very likely belong to that company. So work for a university instead. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And internet governance. uh, Could you specify the organization that you were referring to? Uh, I
1: am referring to uh, the Internet Governance forum.
0: The Internet Governance Forum. Well, uh,
1: should the the IGF. be renewed? Do these advanced translates for the next 10 years' challenges?
2: I haven't been close to the IGF meetings recently to be able to answer that question. Sorry.
0: Okay, very good. I'll take another batch maybe from the room, and maybe I'll go to the back of the room. So I'll take a gentleman here. Uh, there's one back there, and then the woman there in the white shirt.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you for having this forum. It's it's really great. Um, my name is Craig Chaffield. Um, I'm a big fan of the solid um, architecture. I really uh, really like what it's trying to do. Um, but I say trying to do because um, there's a there's large inertia in in the world. In and really most of the internet is built by people selling probably you or selling something else. Right. They're either selling the user that uses it or selling something else. So my question is. What app or social movement or type of internet site do you see really driving um, the, the mass adoption of, of Solid and um, what sort of time frame do you feel like is, uh, is reasonable?
2: So here's what happened with the web. Every time it grew by a factor of 10, it was a completely different set of motivation. So originally I told the people around me at CERN and um, were pretty skeptical but a few of them started doing uh, stuff when then when people did it at uh, Slack uh, in in the U.S. Then they thought they thought was the great leader in this stuff and they uh, but they thought that, that then they, they did it because they had a massive they had a, a potential website with a huge amount of, of pre-print, preprint data which so the stack, like they put the Slack library on when you look at the path of it. Different people have different motivations, and putting the history of that, in fact, is quite interesting. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's quite random. It's, you know, who so you, you met on a plane would take it, pick it up, and with solid to a certain extent, it's it's like that in a way that. Initially, we've mainly been talking to developers. We've not been talking to end users because, it, you know, we haven't got an amazing finished uh, user experience. But we've had incoming. So, interrupted companies had it incoming from countries and incoming from uh, from large companies. And so, each large company has got a particular scenario, and, and whether thinking this will be where they could really work much better with their with, with, with their consumers or the or the, the with their to, with their um, their citizens. And so, and in fact, so for example, the first country that came in was Flanders. Three years ago, they, they decided that because the president, the minister president of Flanders, he had a stinted idea at one point, so he knew tech. He just he did, he made a, a video to straight to camera. You know, everybody in Flanders should have, have control of their data. And that is the way we, the government, will talk to you. And so now that's rolling out. And so that, was that so Flanders is leading. So it, we don't have to wait for everybody in Flanders to discover solids. They'll just get it every time they get a the driving license. So that, and maybe that will only work with Flanders and nobody else. And then we'll have a completely separate growth in the US with one particular company that finds a way of solving one particular need. And so very hard to tell in advance which of these things are going to take off. But there's a huge backlash
0: Waiting to have. Thanks very
2: much. The so, gentlemen, yeah, in the green. A very good evening. Thank you so much for the talk. Uh, my name is Siddharth. I'm a Masters of Law student at LSE. Uh, so, my question to you is um, Do you think that um, data localization and restrictions on cross border data transfer, such as in the EU, preventing, say, data transfers to third countries which do not have? an adequate level of protection or creating this sort of splinternet net or um, imposing
1: data sovereignty in different countries as opposed to the idea of the internet that you originally
2: envisioned? Or how do you sort of reconcile the way different countries sort of have their own sets of internet or policies governing the way the, the World Wide Web should look like? You know? You're passing okay.
0: that one to Kent. Do you want to do the we'll Splinternet yeah. question?
1: i'm not sure i have a good answer to that i mean one of the things that i don't understand is how you can make policy in one country that uh, regulates what happens on the internet within the borders of that country unless you impose some national firewall and then you have a very different internet um, and i don't think it, even with that we all know uh, it's possible to get around that quite easily through technological means I and mean, we haven't even talked about the alternative you know the, the dark web with a completely different system of, of ways to connect um, to, to various servers, so um, I don't know the answer to that, but I feel like that for policy if I don't know the answer to that, or even begin to know then um, I wonder what policymakers are, are hoping to, to accomplish <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: <laughs> we'll in the back Good evening, Professor Tim. It's an honor to have you here. Um, I'm Abhinaya, I'm an LSE alumna, and I work for a Privacy and Civil Liberties NGO that focuses on new and emerging technologies. Um, my question to you actually is, well, a few weeks from now, on the 6th of June, it marks 10 years uh, since Snowden revelations. So I wanted your thoughts and reflections on the issue of mass surveillance as it stands today as someone who, well, literally invented the World Wide Web, uh, but also as a champion of privacy and a believer in open equal internet. So, yeah. Mm. Mass surveillance. Uh,
2: Generally not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And and so, yeah, I'm afraid I'm happy with the world where with end-to-end encryption, I notice that that for years I've tried to get all my people I can communicate with to use even PGP encrypted emails. So I, and but I know that whenever that when I have communicate I communicate with different people all over whether it's WhatsApp or Apple Messages or whatever they're all they're all end to encrypted. But I, but it's pretty obvious from people looking in the network out there that the sort of web of people I, so I'm connecting with. So that for law enforcement, they shouldn't need to be able to have to decrypt my messages to figure out whether I'm up to no good. And so, particular, for example, when you when when you see in Myanmar there was a there was a wave of WhatsApp messages, and when you looked just you looked at the graph of connected you nodes, know, and you see then and, and instead of instead of just the sort of discussions going on and propagating around, there was somebody suddenly, for example, repeat posting the same thing or a set of people uh, posting things every t- 20 milliseconds or something, or you know, the, the, the things you can see going on or, or, or you see a, a group which has got uh, where nasty messages tend to propagate uh, really quickly. You can see a lot from looking at the, uh, uh, the topology groups and uh, so on. So I, I think um, where I stand on that uh, mass surveillance is that, that yeah, we do have to allow the police to, have to be able to uh, investigate um, c- criminal activity, but that should not, but they should, they cannot, uh, shouldn't be given the, the ability to look at every message.
0: Okay. Do we have any online questions you wanted to tell us about Danny? Sure. We have uh, two good
4: uh, online questions, something more. What are your thoughts on the interoperability of Web 3.0 technologies and data policies? How can different platforms and systems work together to ensure seamless data exchange while maintaining privacy and security? Sorry. Uh, Another is, the web and the data regime you're discussing is underpinned by the digital computing technology we're using today. You did just mention PGP, for example. What do you think about the potential for quantum computing technology to disrupt this vision entirely?
2: Uh, I'm not an expert on quantum. I don't know. I'm told that quantum uh, sensors of magnetic fields are really uh, nifty, but not my quantum uh, no area. So what? Was, so what was the? The, one the before first that? one was intero-
0: interoperability. Interop.
2: okay. So, interop is uh, interoperability between things. Is what we need. The solid is a interop play. It's solid. Set of, You know, the web is an interop thing. The web says, TCPIP said you should be able to interoperate when it comes to connecting. Two computers together across a whole bunch of connected, integrated networks. The web said you should have interoperability in that any web browser should be able to go through, display any website, and so whatever HTML is on it. So, so the HTML standards means that we have a common language for talking about hypertext, and then we have common languages like RDF for talking about data, which are really important in, uh, in our world of social data, and we and then uh, so we have. The interoperability, so if you log in with solid, uh, it's like you, you can log in with any, whatever provider you log in with, Facebook or Google, you, uh, wherever you take that login, that that ID will be respected. So that's just, in a way, it's, it's not rocket science, but it's just saying, let's take the existing technology, but make it interop, make it interop. Right? Everybody should share the same login protocol. Everybody should share the same concept of, of groups uh, so that I can share my Facebook photos with my LinkedIn groups and so on. So when, the, when we break down the those, when everything goes well, into your solid pods, then that's it's interoperability. On, then on top of the solid platform, once you've got, when you've got so a lot of that solid technology goes into the server. So when you have a solid pod server, it sits there and you can write any, an app can write any data into it once. And then the, now we have the huge challenge of so even for every app, so for the level 7, if you like, remember levels, the levels, I say standards, level 7 is application there. The ITF never talks about level 7 really. What well, they did with, with calendars and, and, and contacts. So with things like calendars and contacts, but now with fitness, with nutrition, with food, with retail, with health. Being. Okay, so we need, what we need to do is take all the standards like HL7 and map it into your pod. Like the fire... Now, President Chupol, huge amount of work, uh, but the benefit then is, is massive because then you get application level interoperability. Then you get le- you you, know, you need to have level like you have currently. You have a- calendars are quite good. They they are level seven now. <clears throat> interrupt. You are all different calendars talk to each other. But you so we need all our doctors and clinics and medical machines and and Fitbit watches to all... Talk to each other like calendars do.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't that be transformative? Okay, I think we have time for one more round of questions, if you can sustain. <laughs> um, hmm. all right. I'm gonna take the gentleman here in the blue, the gentleman here, and I think it's that the woman in the back there.
2: Thank you. Uh, my name is Juan Cicada. I'm the head of AI of data.world and also Tim, uh I'm, I was a general chair of the web
1: conference that was a couple weeks ago at, in Austin, Texas, so it, is an, it was an honor for my career to be the general chair of the conference that has uh, done all the research, uh, for everything we've done at the web. So uh, I have a, a technical and a behavioral question. So The, the web is an interlinked information space, uh, and the human interface to this information space has been through the browser, search, clicking on links, going to a page, reading, following another link. Uh, with the rise of ChatGPT that we saw just huge growth, right? I I personally see this as another human interface to this information space, which is chatting and conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Is chatting in this conversation, the new browser search follow the links approach? And if so, how will this affect human behavior?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To To a large extent, I mean, when you bring the new in, is video the new pictures? Yeah. Uh, after a while, the web was capable of uh, you know, technology that uh, was capable of storing videos as well as photos, uh, because discs were cheaper and bandwidth was, band was cheaper. So the web kind of moved generally uh, to to video, and and so you, and uh, but pictures are th- sort of thing, and poems are sort of thing, and text is sort of thing and well-written, well, well-written, 128. Poets, haikus are still a thing. So the, you know, and in a way, so when the new thing comes, don't, don't, so search, being able to search websites, the web for, for documents is still gonna be important. Uh, but, and this will, and then we'll have uh, AI tools will be, what, what's neat to a certain extent is that when you, when we look at this world of, I imagine that we have got all of that data on our on our pod, all of that different data from different parts of our life. That standardising is going to be a lot of effort, a finite amount of effort, but stuff we're going to have to. do. But then imagine now you've got 40, all the the 120 apps on your phone are now all pieces of data in your pod which are all linked together. So the benefit, the insight you get from data is when you when it links together. So now even in your personal data in your your, the data from which you used to be in your apps and now in your pot, then writing the apps, writing apps to to get insight from that is going to take. a it's also going to be hard, but now we can then we can point AI at it, so we can use AI to produce. When we have this whole new world of data, then it looks like things like ChatGPT will be out pretty well. Should we should be need tools for writing in that series. But, oh, but there'll be other stuff too. Gentleman here.
4: Thanks. Um, my name is Varun Sitaram. I'm a, an alumnus of the LSE and, and of Imperial as it happens. Um, my question is about encryption and data and it effectively being in the hands of tech companies who are essentially unaccountable and have questions about tax and all of that kind of stuff. And Uh, what the dangers are of having the data all held with effectively kind of opaque and unaccountable bodies as opposed to public available ownership and governance and the questions of how we get from one to the other to avoid catastrophic outcomes?
2: Well, it's not, you know, when WhatsApp, when the WhatsApp app encrypts something, then it's not held by WhatsApp, It's encrypted on your phone, It's decrypted from somebody else's phone and and when it goes across the internet, when it goes through WhatsApp servers, then they can't, nobody in that path can read it. So if you say you're failure mode, you you could say, well, WhatsApp could be evil, they could bury bury, uh, a chat so that they could then um, sink your key out. They could put a back door, uh, the, the government could ask them to put a back door, uh, in itself, for example, but if they if they did that, they'd, they'd, they'd do. I think whistleblowers. It's it's, it's not tenable. If you're a t- uh, tech company and you, and you say we encrypt the data on the uh, uh, on the source and you don't, that you won't you won't last two seconds and you'll be so toast. So uh, and there are so many other you know. Particular. There's telegram, signal, and, telegram, and they all have to sort of differ the different sort of different levels of poor non-profit and for-profit, and so on. So, I would worry about putting stuff on the blockchain, right? Because that, if you put something really crucial on the blockchain, then you encrypt it. So that it's, and but, but then you leave it, but you leave in public, and people will then copy it, and they will keep it until they can later, years on, they will then get the, the more powerful technology to encrypt it. So, in general. Leaving stuff public and, uh, and encrypted is not a very good long-term solution. But, uh, but sending stuff across and using things like the messenger services like Signal and so, so on is, uh, yeah.
0: OK. Last one over here.
3: Hello. Uh, and first of all, I mean, thank you so much for being here. It's been great um, to sit here and listen. Um, so my name is Hajar, and um, I'm an ELIS E alumna. Um, And I'm probably the uh, least technologically literate person here, but uh, (laughs) essentially um, I work for a geopolitical consultancy firm where we interact with a lot of private sector uh, decision makers. Um, And so uh, essentially I'm... They tend to be really interested in these questions about um, developments and advancements in AI and in web development Um, and so from what I've noticed is that there's a really big uh, private sector commitment to commercial gains um, which often far outweigh their commitment to accountability Um, and so my question is essentially: How do you reconcile between accountability and responsibility and these commercial gains? How do you build uh, the necessary guardrails, um, to especially in the private sector? So, um, interested in that. Okay. Guardrails—that's
0: what everybody's talking about these days.
2: That's, there's also they're also looking at sort of open source versus um, of non-profit. One of the and so sort of the quite Yes, when you look at your, the companies you work with, and you find that uh, they're motivated towards revenue—that you're saying—that is overriding—and so when you're trying to advise them to do good things, actually, the, the, you have to advise them—you can't really advise them to do anything which doesn't make the maximum profit. Well, it's—I uh, think the, the world is a lot of companies are trying to be uh, to be responsible companies. A lot of. There was was a whole bunch of CEOs who said, actually, you know, even though we're a company, even though you, the board, officially control us, uh, I will, as CEO, reserve the right to do something which is better for the planet. And so uh, there was a wave, the wave of CEOs making that announcement. Whether they could, will will that work? Uh, Or will we, uh, there's also people asking whether we need, uh, we've got for profits, we've got non-profits, do we need if you try to write code, the, the Mozilla Foundation uh, doesn't write code because it just can't function as a code as a you can't employ people you can't sort of accept responsibility for the out code if you're non-profit right? uh, or I gather uh, right, talk to them. So what they so the then Mozilla company is wholly owned by the, by the non-profit. So non- so that the, when the company works as a for-profit. But it's, but its values are completely steered by its owner. So 100% of the ownership is non-profit. So that, uh, uh, I think that AI originally, OpenAI, I think, it had the same, it always moved to the same, same sort of arrangement. So interesting things are, if people want to do the right thing, do, should we all look at, do we need different governance models, systems? Do we need th- different forms of incorporation uh, in order to be able to create something so when you create it, you can commit it first doing the right thing, right? First doing climate change, first being responsible to humanity, and then secondly to making a comment. Uh, uh, I leave that for all of the, the lawyers and the economists <laughs> in the audience. To figure out. To... Uh, <laughs> to <laughs>
0: yes. I think I have to... Looking at my mind, is, can I take... I've got some very insistent two questions there. Yes? All right, I'll give, it, I'll give you two if you make it very quick. It's
3: very quick. You've spent your life thinking about the web. When you're not thinking about the web, what do you do to
0: relax? <laughs> I think that's a good final question, actually.
2: Uh, well, for ex- uh I, for example, dive into water. Get wet. <laughs> well, don't worry, not worrying too much about the temperature. But, uh, and I run, um, so running, running in and then cooling off in, in, in uh, water. Cold uh, water, sounds like. Cold, well, it you to cold? Be cold. yes, but you... So, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy agnostic. to do it in warm water, too, but, you know, <laughs> fresh. It's entering... The fresh
0: water. Yes,
2: please your mind. So, uh, the um, the water log book, uh, Roger Deacon wrote a book about. You can get if you uh, get Roger Deacon's book, the the biography, is, uh, mm-hmm. by Patrick. Uh, just, so uh, Roger Deacon wrote a book, wrote all about the joy of going into water, and he uh, he died a little while ago, but somebody has written a biography of him which came out yesterday
0: Hmm. Okay, very good Everybody get into (laughs) water Okay Well, let me just say a couple of words to close First of all, it's been an incredible honour to honour you I think uh, think you have a sense in the room that if we let the applause run it wouldn't stop, and if we let the questions run, they wouldn't stop either (laughs) I think for, certainly for me, and I suspect for a lot of us What's most impressive is your combination of intellectual technological genius but also humanity and marrying those two things uh, in your work, in your life, in the work you do that benefits all of us uh, to combine how can we reconcile these huge technological innovations with maintaining our humanity. And so I think we all... Have great gratitude to you for the work you've done and the work that you continue to do, and I'll invite you to join me in one final round of applause. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.